This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington. And this week on Face the Nation, with COVID-19 cases skyrocketing in the Sun Belt and parts of the West, the mixed messages and political divisions when it comes to trying to contain the virus are growing as well. More than four months into the pandemic, the president modeled a new look during a visit to wounded soldiers at a Washington area military hospital. I think it's a great thing to wear a mask. I've never been against masks, but I do believe they have a a time and a place. The decision to publicly follow CDC guidance came a day after the U.S. recorded more than 67,000 new cases of coronavirus. Is the United States losing the war against COVID? No, we're winning the war, and we have areas that flamed up, and they're going to be uh, fine. But those areas, and some new ones, are primarily in states that loosened shutdown restrictions early on. They're now being bombarded with new infections, rapidly growing hospitalizations, and death rates. I don't think you can say we're doing great. I mean, we're just not. Dr. Anthony Fauci's diagnosis on what's making the pandemic worse? Partisanship. When you don't have unanimity in an approach to something, you're not as effective in how you handle it. Some mayors are overruling governors in a desperate effort to get the flare-ups under control. Federal guidance is vague. The Trump administration is now pushing hard to get the nation's 56 million K through 12th grade students back to school in the fall. So we're very much going to put pressure on governors and everybody else to open the schools, to get them open. Getting kids back to school is something everyone agrees should happen, but can it happen safely? If so, how? We'll talk exclusively with Surgeon General Jerome Adams. Plus, we'll hear from Phoenix, Arizona Mayor Kate Gallego. We'll ask the head of Advent Health, one of Florida's largest hospital groups, Terry Shaw, about the situation in the Sunshine State. 
Former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb will also be with us, along with the head of KinderCare, one of the country's largest child care providers. Plus, a look at how COVID-19 is impacting the presidential campaign in Florida, Texas, and Arizona in our new Battleground Tracker poll. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Welcome to Face the Nation. The news we woke up to this morning makes us feel like we've been here before, and we have. Coronavirus cases in parts of the country are spiking, and there are reports of shortages of medical personnel, ICU beds, and personal protective equipment. Testing demands in hot spots outweigh supply. The lines are long, and the labs are backed up. What's different? The regions we're seeing these spikes in are primarily, not all, so-called red states, where President Trump won in 2016, and governors are primarily Republican. What lessons were learned from the outbreak this spring? Did they move too quickly to reopen? Some scientists, including Dr. Anthony Fauci, say yes. Our coverage begins this morning with CBS News national correspondent Mark Strassman in Atlanta. For these Texans, no masks, no distancing, no worries, despite another wave of COVID battering the state. Record new cases in four of the last seven days. Record hospitalizations for 12 straight days. And the state's deadliest week yet in the pandemic. We want this to end, believe me. And Texans heard these spikes will only continue. The only strategy we have left to avoid having our economy shut down again is for everyone to use a mask to slow the spread. It's like before, only worse, across the South and West, mostly in states that loosened COVID restrictions early on. Twelve states this past week recorded positivity rates higher than 10 percent. Seven states set single-day death records this week. In Houston, lines of people sweltered to get a COVID test. In San Diego, test results take 10 days. Worrisome in a state that set a new single-day death record on Thursday. PPE shortages are again an issue. Florida has hired 1,000 people to help hospitals under siege. They've got beds. They can put down more beds. Um, they just need to make sure they have enough folks to staff the beds. This week, expect to see more restrictions. Louisianans do. Starting tomorrow, anyone anywhere in the state, ages 8 and up, has to wear a mask in public. I want people to understand we have no reason to believe that the numbers that we've been reporting over the last few days are going to get any better. Uh, over the next couple of weeks. In fact, they, they are likely to get worse. Here in Atlanta, this convention center has been reactivated for overflow COVID patients. And Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms has rolled back the city's reopening. Most people are supposed to stay home again. But here, as in much of America, there's mixed messaging. The state's Republican governor has told the city's Democratic mayor only he gets to decide where and when to roll back. Margaret? Mark Strassman in Atlanta, thank you. We want to go now to the Surgeon General, Vice Admiral Jerome Adams. The doctor joins us this morning from Wolcottville, Indiana. Good morning to you. Well, good morning, Margaret. I wish I was here under different circumstances because, as you mentioned, case counts are going up in many localities, and we are absolutely concerned about that. 
But there are two very important things that I just want the American people to know. Number one, we are in a very different place than what we were in February and March. Uh, we have an over 300% increase in available PPE, and that's not to say mission accomplished, but we are in a better place. We have remdesivir, steroids, convalescent plasma, all which mean that if you actually get diagnosed yeah. with COVID, your chance of dying from it is significantly lower than what it was in February okay. and March. And that's important for the American people to know. The other really quick thing that I just want people to know yeah. is that I would like it, to get the to disease some course is only about two. Yes, absolutely. This, this is an important point, though. The disease course is about two weeks. So while we're seeing cases rise, we can see cases go down just as quickly if the American people will do the things that we know slow the spread of this disease, including wearing a face covering. Critically important yes. for people to know COVID stops with me. We have the power to, to turn this thing around. Okay. Let's start there then, because you are wearing a mask. You are clearly trying to make a point. Um, at the beginning of April is when the administration started telling the public to wear masks. But just the last time you were with us here on Face the Nation, March 8th, you said this. Let's listen. And stay safe by washing your hands, by covering your cough, by staying home if you're sick. Masks do not work for the general public in preventing them from getting coronavirus. Right, and the week before that, you tweeted in all caps, seriously, people stop buying masks. You said they were not effective. Do you regret saying that? Well, it's important for people to understand that once upon a time, we prescribed cigarettes for asthmatics and leeches and cocaine and heroin for people as medical treatments. When we learn better, we do better. And the WHO, Are you saying the at that time you did not know because the CDC in February was looking at asymptomatic transmission of the virus? We, we were looking at that, but the CDC, the WHO, and even in May, there was a New England Journal of Medicine article that still disputed whether or not masks were effective. We've learned more about asymptomatic spread. Up to 50% of people who can spread this disease spread it without having symptoms. And that's why the American people need to know that science is about giving the best recommendations you can. And yes. when you learn more, you change those recommendations. Our recommendations have changed. Okay. Now, people of America, important to know you should wear a face covering. Uh, and we certainly do. Out in public. Uh, we certainly do take that advice, but I think you have to acknowledge that this mixed messaging has created confusion and it has drawn into question some of the credibility of the administration. Are you certain well, and that we're trying this to wasn't that just done Margaret, because of a shortage? Of, well, I'd like you to clarify it. Were you saying that then yes. because there just wasn't enough equipment? I was saying that then because everything we knew about coronaviruses before that point told us that people were not likely to spread when they were asymptomatic. So the science at the time suggested that there was not a high degree of asymptomatic spread. We learned more. Um, th there, there also was, as you mentioned, the very real concern about hoarding of PPE and, and right. uh, people dressing up in trash bags as healthcare workers. That was a part of it, but the primary reason was because that's what the science said. And I want the American people to understand we follow the science, and when we learn more, our recommendations change. But it's hard when people are continuing to talk about things from three, four months ago. I've said consistently for the past three months, uh, ad nauseum on the internet and in interviews, wear a face covering. It helps slow asymptomatic spread. It will help us reopen churches and schools and have right. prom next year and have football in the fall. Right, uh, which is why I think leveling with the public is important. Um, when you, I, I wanna also get to something very specific in terms of what the CDC has revealed this week, and that is in particular, 
Uh, Hispanics and black Americans are three times more likely to get the virus. They are twice as yes. likely to die from it than Caucasians are. You said a few days ago that one of the reasons that you had questions about mandating masks is because you said in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement, you worry about having a situation where you're giving people one more reason to arrest a black man. To be very clear, are you saying that racism makes it too risky to mandate masks and black Americans, you are also prescribing for them wearing masks now? So to be very clear, I am not saying it makes it too risky. I'm saying that if we're going to have a mask mandate, we need to understand that works best at the local and state level along with education. We need people to understand why they're doing it, and we need people to understand how they benefit from it. Because if we just try to mandate it, you have to have an enforcement mechanism. And we're in the midst of a moment when over-policing has caused uh, many different individuals to, to be killed for, for very minor offenses. And that is an important consideration. As Surgeon General, I want people to understand why they should wear a face covering. And they're going to be more likely to do it. They're going to be more likely to do it willingly. And they're going to be more likely to do it when we're not watching, which is important. I want to ask you about where we are as a country right now. Um, in Texas and Arizona, there are reports of refrigerator trucks being ordered because morgues are about to be overwhelmed. The two senators from Texas are requesting a field hospital be set up because of concerns about overcrowding. This morning, the Republican head of the National Governors Association said there should have been a national testing strategy, and now this thing is out of control. Does the administration have this under control? Well, what I will tell you is that we're in a very different place than what we were in February. We are much better able to respond. We've sent out 10 teams to the most uh, problematic areas, and we have another nine going out this week to help with staffing, to help with testing. We do have a national testing strategy, and we're working with states to give them all the supplies that they actually ask for. So again, but, but as please you, don't as mistake you heard... me for saying that we are happy with where we are. Please don't mistake me for saying we're happy with, with where we are. What I'm saying is that we are working with states to make sure we can respond to this incredibly uh, contagious disease. And part of that, again, is making sure we're slowing the spread by right. helping people understand the importance of wearing face coverings and good hand hygiene and staying home when they can. Understood. But I think, you know, the administration has talked about the, this tension between reopening the economy and dealing with the virus. The, the pain that people felt and, and took to their pocketbooks on the East Coast and the West of this country when they shut down the economy, they were told that was to mitigate the spread. They were told that was so uh, people could get ready for another round of this virus. But right now, what we're hearing sounds like what we saw in April, shortages of PPE, waiting times for test results. What happened and who's in charge of fixing that? Well, I think it's a little bit unfair to say that this is exactly what happened in March or April. Again, a 300% increase in personal protective equipment. We're doing a much better job of protecting the vulnerable. It's why you've seen the age of, of cases being diagnosed drop by over a decade and a half, a much lower fatality rate. The CDC director said this week that more People testing needs longer. to be done. So the administration, health well, officials are we, acknowledging that. 
we, we are doing 600, 700,000 tests per day. And I will agree with you that in, in certain areas, we do need to do more testing. And that's why we have these strike teams, uh, multidisciplinary teams of health experts going to the problem areas. The other thing to understand is if you look at Arizona, for instance, Arizona as a state is steady. But when you look at, uh, at, at Phoenix area, Maricopa County, that's, that's increasing. The, these increases that you're hearing are very regional, and so we have a very targeted approach to make sure we're getting the resources to the people that need it the most so that, again, we don't see the fatality that we saw in March and April, which Tony Fauci, Dr. Redfield, uh, myself, no one in the task force wants to see that, and we don't think we're going to see that because we're better prepared to respond, but it's got to be coupled with prevention. And I know I keep harping on that, but we have the power to slow the spread. I would ask you to share my PSA, hashtag COVID stops with me mm -hmm. on my website, because together we can turn this thing around in just two to three weeks if everyone does their part. More studies coming out showing the effectiveness of and face coverings. Uh, two, sorry, two to three weeks for what exactly? The disease course is about two to three weeks. So just as we've seen cases skyrocket, we can turn this thing around in two to three weeks if we can get a critical mass of people wearing face coverings, practicing at least six feet of social distancing, doing the things that we know are effective. And it's important for the American people to understand when we're talking about the fall, we have the ability to turn this right. around very quickly if people will do the right thing. And I think everyone in America wants you to turn this around and wishes you the best of luck in doing that. But a lot of American parents are very wor worried about sending their children back into classrooms in the middle of increasing cases in hot spots in large parts of this country. The president said this week that the CDC guidelines on schools are very tough and expensive. They're asking schools to do very impractical things. The CDC guidelines say use hand sanitizer with 60% alcohol, put up barriers between desks to have kids six feet apart. What part of this is too tough and too expensive? Well, uh, I'll, thank you for that question. I have a 16, a 14, and a 10-year-old, and I want them back in school. We know that kids who uh, are not in school are more likely to be obese, to misuse substances. There's less reporting of, of sexual abuse and, a, and of child abuse. There are real health implications to not being in school, but it has to be done safely. And right. the CDC the guidelines that are out talk about best-case scenarios, and I'll give you a very specific example. They say that every kid should bring in their own lunch. So you asked for a specific example. We know that in some school districts, in many school districts, over 50% of kids are eating lunch at school and don't have the ability to bring their own lunch. So that's one case where we need to work directly with local school districts and help them figure out, okay, if you can't do what is the gold standard best case scenario, can you do something that's a compromise to safely reopen? That's what we're talking about when we talk about issuing new, uh, new, more specific recommendations that we can look at school district by school district. And we'll because get those not this everyone week? can do the gold standard. Uh, yeah, uh, my understanding is the CDC will okay. get those out. And I know they're working with individual school districts. I actually am here okay. uh, it, it, talking this morning with my, uh, with my sister-in-law, who is a, who's a principal at a local school here, and they've got a plan. That's what's important okay. for each district to have a plan to figure out how to do this safely. Right. And I think there's a lot of looking for a national plan. Doctor, we wish you well. Thank you very much uh, for your insight today. We'll be Thank back you. in one minute with a lot more Face the Nation. Don't go away. <sighs> The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. 
Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. We turn now to one of the nation's hot spots, Phoenix, Arizona. Mayor Kate Gallego joins us. Good morning to you, Madam Mayor. Um, I, Good morning. I read that your county has been ordering refrigerator trucks and the expectation that morgues will be overwhelmed. Can you give us a reality check of what is happening on the ground? It continues to be a very difficult situation in the greater Phoenix area. We are seeing positivity rates above 20%. We continue to have a real challenge with testing, although there was some very good news this week about additional resources that are coming. We are setting records of the type you don't want to set for the use of ventilators by COVID patients, acute care beds. Our healthcare workers are telling us they are already tired and they are worried that there could be an additional growth. Mm -hmm after the 4th of July. There was a little bit of flattening in the rate of growth, so maybe too early to celebrate and we don't have a firm trend yet, but I'm looking for positive news. Well, uh, I read that the city of Phoenix does not have its own health department, um, but given that the pandemic hit the east and west coasts of this country so hard back in February, why wasn't there more planning to surge testing to your city and to your area? We really have had huge issues. We've had people waiting 8, 10, 13 hours. Back in April, I started requesting federal support for additional testing. At the time, our peer cities, such as Houston, which is the fourth largest city, were the fifth largest. We're getting federal support for mass testing, and I requested it. At the time, they said we didn't have sufficient caseload. Now we clearly have sufficient caseload, and I began making the requests again and again. Um, it came up at the White House press briefing this week. I think they felt uh, they, the term they used for me was out of tune. But the good news is they did finally decide that they are going to be bringing that federal testing to our community, and it cannot come a moment too soon. Uh, the governor in your state has now uh, made some accommodations. He's limited indoor capacity at restaurants to 50 percent, bars, uh, gyms, movie theaters, water parks have all been ordered to cease operations. What is it that you want to do in Phoenix that you cannot do right now and what needs to be done to get control? I joined mayors from across Arizona to ask the governor to put in place significant expansion and safety precautions. We do not have a statewide requirement for facial coverings in Arizona, and we need one. We would love to see additional protections, including moving restaurants completely to takeout. Uh, we would also like to have some of the riskier personal care situations like nail salons. We think that's just not necessary right now while you're seeing such high levels of the virus. Uh, the governor did say this week that he's going to push back school reopenings. In your city, in your area, um, is there any way you can safely open school districts in the coming weeks, given the numbers you're seeing? We have separately elected school boards, and we're now seeing many of those elected leaders say we can't open until at least October. With the levels of the virus so pronounced in our community, they just don't feel like it's a safe environment for teachers to go in, and they're concerned about our students as well as spread of the virus. I hope there'll be full financial support for those school districts, including digital programming. 
you know, there's so much financial hardship right now. And in looking what's happening within your state, the moratorium on evictions expires July 22nd. Do you have a sense of whether the state will extend that moratorium? And in your city, are you expecting a spike in homelessness? And what do you do with that in the middle of an outbreak like this? The best advice that public health professionals give is to stay home, but that's difficult if you don't have a home or are about to be evicted from it. I'm deeply worried about the expiration of the eviction order. What we're hearing is particularly renters are at risk. Many mortgage companies have been willing to say, we have a 30-year mortgage, we'll add a few months at the end. But if you're in month six of a year lease, you're, you're at huge risk of, of being evicted. And I, I, I feel for our landlords, landlords, we have many retired couples who own a duplex, and that's a big part of their retirement. So we yeah. need to think about landlords as well. Okay. Uh, what we're hearing is that our communities of color who are already so hard yeah. hit are likely to be among the highest levels of eviction. So it's, it's concerning from many levels we will, in Phoenix. We will be watching that. Thank you. Thank you, Mayor. Good luck. We'll be right back. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Another Friday night bombshell rocked Washington late last week. President Trump commuted the sentence of friend and political operative Roger Stone, who was due to report to prison Tuesday to serve a 40-month term. A jury had convicted him of witness tampering, false statements, and obstructing an investigation into interference in the 2016 election. President Trump defended his decision. Roger Stone was treated horribly. Roger Stone was treated very unfairly. Yesterday, former FBI Director Robert Mueller defended the investigation, saying Stone remains a convicted felon, and rightly so. Some of our stations are leaving us now. When we come back, we'll take a look at the hospital situation in Florida. It is one of the states now struggling to contain the virus. Yesterday, they reached a quarter million cases. Stay with us. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Florida is one of the states now struggling to contain the virus. Yesterday, they reached a quarter million cases. 
The same day, Disney World officially opened up two of their parks. One more example of the tension between reopening the economy versus the threat to Americans' health. Advent Health is the biggest hospital chain headquartered in Florida. Terry Shaw is its CEO, and he joins us from Orlando. Good morning to you. Good morning, Margaret. Uh, so you have about 30 hospitals in the state of Florida. Um, you know, in other states, in Arizona and Texas, there are these reports of morgues being close to being overwhelmed. Are you at that point in Florida? It's a very stressful time in, in Florida, Margaret, but no, we're not at that point. I'm thankful that we've had several months to learn how to treat the disease. We're much better prepared in July than we were in March. We have adequate personal protective equipment. We have a stockpile of ventilators, and we have an amazing clinical team that have taken best practices from around the globe and put them into our treatment protocols. And I'll give you an example. Our length of stay um, in our ICU for COVID patients has dropped in half. Um, the number of people coming in to our hospital with COVID that need a ventilator, we've also been able to cut that in half. And because of those things, our death rate has also been cut in half over that time period. This disease is only seven months, um, mm -hmm. and our clinical team has done an amazing job determining how to care for people better today than they were just even three months ago. Well, the state of Florida has only just this Friday started reporting officially hospitalization data, but you know what you're seeing in your own facilities. So can you tell us, based on what you know, when you think the peak of hospitalizations will be? Based upon the testing, my guess is that the peak is sometime in front of us in, the, in July. And that would assume that people um, do what they need to do from both a distancing perspective and from a masking perspective to slow down the spread of the virus. COVID gets passed from per one person to the next, and we can all do a better job making for sure that we're caring for one another by just wearing a simple mask and staying six feet from a distance perspective from the next person. So um, from an do Go, I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. So from what you are laying out, do I hear you saying that you currently have enough uh, supplies, PPE, you have enough medical staff to deal with the surge that you say is still in front of you? Yes. So in April, so March and April, we spent an enormous amount of money on PPE, and we continue to have stockpiled PPE that we so desperately need right now. And so, no, we are not short on PPE. Um, remdesivir is also coming in. We just got a shipment in from, the, from our uh, state government this mm -hmm. weekend. We were running low last week, but we have enough of that to continue to care for people. Our ICU capacities are running at about 85 to 90 percent, but we have the ability to turn some of our progressive care units into ICU units if we need to do so. Also, as a multi-state system, we're working with one of our um, sister states in Colorado where we have facilities to bring uh, clinicians from Colorado to Florida to help us staff up if we need to on an ongoing basis. I, I wanted to ask you specifically about that because back in the spring in New York, you saw that happen with medical personnel uh, really being the, the thing most in demand and coming in from out of state. Uh, you, are you calling for that? Do you need more personnel specifically? What do you need? And on remdesivir, which you just said you're about to get more of, how much supply do you have? How long does that last? So the remdesivir that, we, that I'm just talking about, we got in this weekend, 
and we're supposed to get another shipment in this week. And at this juncture, I think we have enough as a system across our 30 hospitals to care for the people that would be coming in to our one of our facilities for care. Relative to staff, it's very important that you have the ability to move staff around your state. One of the things that we did in uh, back in March was uh, de develop and program a staff redeployment program that allowed us to move critical resources around our organization with both within the state of Florida and then move people outside of the state of Florida to Florida or vice versa based upon where spikes were coming and where people would be needed the most. Um, I was looking at some of the uh, state reports on ICU capacity at your different facilities across the state. Disney World's in Orlando, as many Americans know, or the Orlando area, and they reopened yesterday. I know your company has been hired by them to help advise on opening safely. But when I look at ICU availability in that area, it's pretty tight. Is it a good idea yeah. to open theme parks? So as a healthcare provider, my job is to help people do things safely. Uh, whether it's NASCAR or Disney, we have strategic alliances with those organizations and we work very closely with them to help them determine a way to reopen and do that safely. Okay. Uh, I will tell you, based upon the way Disney is approaching this with yeah. limiting people in, doing all the screenings that they're doing, I'm a, I personally am a Disney season ticket holder. Yeah. I wouldn't hesitate to go to Disney as a healthcare CEO based upon okay. the fact that they're working extremely hard to keep people safe. All right, thank you very much. Good luck to uh, everyone working in your hospitals. We go now to Westport, Connecticut and former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, last Sunday when you were with us, you said we had four major epicenters of spread and you predicted we would get to about 60,000 infections a day. That's right about where we've been for the past at least three days. You said within two weeks we'd be at 1,000 infections a day, uh, or excuse me, 1,000 deaths a day. What do we need to be prepared for next? Well, look, I think things are going to get worse before they get better. There's some private modeling floating around that shows that this is possibly going to peak in the next two or three weeks. You see Google mobility data and open table reservations starting to decline in these southern states where these dense epidemics are happening which is an indication that consumers are pulling back. And that's going to create somewhat of a backstop. But I think what you're likely to see in the South, um, which is different than New York, New York really followed the pattern of Italy, where it was a sharp up, a huge epidemic, but it came down rapidly. I think in the South, you're likely to see an extended plateau. We really don't have a national approach here. What we have is state approaches that are creating regional effects. And so those regional effects are different. The New York experience mirrored Italy. I think the Southern experience is more likely to mirror Brazil, where you're likely to see more of an extended plateau once we reach that apex. And you could reach the apex in the next two or three weeks. The next two to three weeks, that, which is the same time frame the Surgeon General reference there. But when we talked to you throughout this pandemic, um, you had been warning, take New York as a lesson on what you need to be doing. It was a message to other governors for PPE, for preparing to get ahead of this. Why do the southern and western states not appear to be prepared? Well, look, I think that they felt they were out of the woods after that first wave passed. But this has really been a regional experience in the United States. And what happened was they reopened against the backdrop of what was a lot of spread. They hadn't really crushed Too the virus early? in those states. And people became... 
too early in my view, and people became complacent, especially younger people. They were going out not taking precautions. Older people were taking precautions. They were protecting the nursing homes and the vulnerable. But inevitably what happens is if the younger people go out and get infected because they're not taking those precautions, it's going to get back into a more vulnerable population. And that's what we're seeing right now. You're seeing rising cases in nursing homes. Positivity in these states is actually declining in the younger population but rising in the older population. And if you want sort of a proxy for that experience, you look at Iran. Iran had a major epidemic. It came way down. They had a second peak. It was mostly in younger people. They said, don't worry, it's younger people, so we're not going to see the same level of deaths. But eventually, the infection seeped into an older population. That's what's mm-hmm. happening now. You're starting to see more outbreaks in nursing homes. So tragically, we're going to see deaths start to rise. And that's why I said the two to three weeks until you see deaths get back above 1,000. You've spoken before about this question of whether the virus is spread um, through aerosol transmission. And now we know the World Health Organization is looking at it. Should offices and schools be changing their filtration systems? I think this is something they should look at. Remember, um, it's not binary. It's not either airborne or droplet transmission. This could be spread primarily through droplet transmission, but in certain settings that are very conducive to respiratory spread, you get something that approximates airborne transmission. And what, what are those conditions? It's enclosed spaces, spaces with recirculating air, air-conditioned spaces where it's cooler and it's more conducive to spread. So in optimal conditions indoors, you might get the kind of spread patterns that approximate airborne transmission. And in those settings, we should be thinking about trying to improve conditions, mm-hmm. putting in HEPA filters, putting in UV light in the air conditioning systems. I think these are things you should be looking at. And in fact, many businesses are doing that. They are looking at retrofitting um, you know, air conditioning systems. It's, it, in some cases, it's not very expensive to do that. In other cases, it might be more expensive. Well, perhaps that's something we should ask about with schools. The education secretary uh, on another network said this morning that there is a lot of data to suggest that kids are not spreaders of COVID-19. She was talking about putting kids back physically in a classroom five days a week. In your medical opinion, is that data definitive and, and is it convincing? Well, look, the data isn't definitive, but it's certainly suggestive. And what we've learned from this virus is it surprised us. It's both, we've both underestimated it and overestimated it at the same time. So we need to be prudent. I think it's important to give discretion to local districts to take steps to try to de-densify schools and protect kids so we don't have outbreaks. Everyone should be working to reopen the schools. It's critical. And when I talk to Republican and Democratic governors, they're in fact doing that. But I think districts need discretion to try to put in place measures to keep kids safe. No other country, with the exception maybe of Sweden, reopened their schools or kept their schools open against the backdrop of so much spread that we're attempting to do in this country. So we do face a unique risk. And while the balance of the data shows that kids are less susceptible to infection and less likely to transmit it, less susceptible doesn't mean they're not susceptible. And sometimes and some of the studies show that they can compensate for their decline in susceptibility by their propensity to spread infection, by their behaviors that are more likely to propagate infection. And one final point here, you know, if we look at the 2018-2019 flu season, 11.3 million kids became symptomatic from flu that season. There were 480 tragic deaths. We have not seen 11.3 million kids get symptomatic COVID yet because we've largely sheltered the children, and we don't want to see it. Um, we've got to take measures to make sure it doesn't become epidemic in children in the same way that flu becomes epidemic in children because we don't know what the impact's going to be on kids. Right now, the kids have been sheltered. I would guess that the infection rates among children okay. has been relatively low in this country. All right. Uh, we're definitely going to talk to you uh, again about that. As you said, we just we don't know with kids. Uh, So it's something we'll be tracking as the science develops.
We'll be right back with a look at the challenge faced by working parents of young children. Childcare. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We go now to Tom Wyatt, the CEO of KinderCare, a company that operates about 1,500 childcare and early childhood education facilities in 40 states. He joins us from Seattle, Washington. Good morning to you. Good morning, Margaret. I want to ask you about some of the lessons you've learned, but just right off the bat, I see that there have been reports of clusters of COVID cases in some child care centers in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, just this week. Out West as well, there have been some. Um, how does kinder care handle outbreaks like this, and how many have you seen in your facilities? Uh, we've seen a few. Uh, what we do, let me take you through the, the health and safety process. We we keep children in one pod. We keep them in one classroom. Uh, we feel that that's very important because we don't want to uh, have people be exposed to uh, different people, different teachers, what have you. Uh, so we keep them in pods. And by doing so, we have two forms of, if you will, uh, generation or transmissions. One uh, is if we have one case in a center, uh, we'll close that center for 72 hours. We will disinfect it. Uh, then we will reopen it. Uh, if, in fact, we have more cases than that, we will actually uh, close the center for 14 days. Uh, we have closed in the last three months, uh, we've closed uh, about 70 of our centers for 14 days, uh, and we have closed 120 of them uh, for 72 hours. And, and we feel like that means that our process is working, our protocols are working, which uh, we work very closely with the CDC, and candidly, we are above uh, what their requirements are, because mm -hmm. we actually feel very strongly that we're we're uh, taking care of the most precious asset a family has. Uh, I'm sure every parent would agree with you in that. Um, but specifically, what does that mean? What kind of protections are you giving your staff? Are you testing them? And if so, how regularly? And, and is there any data that you have that shows that kids are spreading it or not spreading COVID? We have no data to say they're spreading or not spreading it. Uh, as far as what we do, uh, all of our teachers wear masks. Uh, all of our teachers that are in states that are offering essential workers uh, testing, we encourage them to do so. Um, we actually gave shields to our uh, newborn and infant teachers because we wanted the children to actually see the expressions of their teachers because they connect that way. Uh, we do a temperature check every time uh, a child comes uh, to the center every single day. Uh, we also have a questionnaire for the families to fill out. Uh, we don't let uh, uh, families take their children back to the room. We actually have a teacher that will come from that pod uh, to uh, escort the child back to that, that room. Uh, as I said, the children stay together. Uh, we sanitize the playground mm -hmm. equipment, every single pod that comes in. Uh, and when the children take naps uh, during the day, we actually position them in a way that they're actually six feet apart. So... Uh, all, all in the pre preservation of, of health and safety. So McKinsey says about 
27 million workers, 16% of the workforce is dependent on childcare in order for them to do their own jobs. But we know there are lower income workers um, who have frontline jobs and um, it's difficult to afford childcare. Uh, even at a facility, um, like you're saying, uh, you are trying to keep open. Um, right. What is the solution to this since it is part of reopening the economy? When you talk to people in Washington, are you suggesting that Congress provide subsidies to child care? I mean, the federal government doesn't do that for early childhood education. Very, very good question. Let me tell you a couple of things that we are in conversations with Congress on and we feel like we'll be a part of, we hope, we'll be a part of phase four uh, when they return on the 20th of July from recess. Two things that we've asked them for is uh, we are operating at a compromised uh, state. Uh, state mandates have been certain number of children in a room, much less than we've had in the past. Our centers, given those mandates, can only get to 45, 50% of their capacity, which candidly, we don't make money at that rate. Uh, so we need to relax those uh, over time and when it's safe to do so. So we've asked for a rebound grant fund, uh, and that fund is for the next six to nine months. We're asking for between 25 and uh, $50 billion uh, to help us get through uh, the additional cost of PPE, the additional cost of training. We have more, uh, uh, labor, in the, more, cent uh, more labor in the center. Uh, than we had pre-COVID. Uh, we have a, a dedicated ambassador for health and safety, which is an additional mm -hmm. headcount. Uh, okay. And all of that with less than 50% of the children that we had pre-COVID. Well, we will. That's one. Yeah. Your question. Well, uh, we, we actually, I'm sorry, I have to, I have to leave it there, but we will be tracking what happens with you and child care on this program. Ahead, uh, thank you for sharing your insights. Uh, Tom Wyatt of KinderCare. We'll be back with some politics in a moment and how the virus is impacting campaign 2020 in those hotspot states. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. It's just over 100 days until Election Day. And this morning, we have a new CBS News battleground tracker out that looks at the presidential race in three states heavily impacted by the coronavirus. That's Arizona, Texas, and Florida. Results show former Vice President Joe Biden will be competitive or better in all three states. Mr. Biden and President Trump are tied 46 to 46 in Arizona. President Trump is up 46 to 45 in Texas, and the former vice president is up by six points, 48 to 42 in Florida. CBS News Elections and Surveys Director Anthony Salvanto joins us from his home this morning in Westchester County, New York. Good morning, Anthony. Good to have you back. Good morning, Margaret. Thank you. So these states are heavily impacted by the virus itself, but is that influencing votes? Uh, in a short answer, yes. And here's how. First, for some context, we asked people if their state reopened and reopened the economy 
too quickly or at the right speed. And a majority in all of them said they thought their state went too quickly. And then they also told us that they felt that the state did that because of pressure from the Trump administration. So you combine that with the president's low approval for handling COVID in these states, and he may be paying something of a political price, at least for the moment there. And then the other thing that struck us is that people in these states are concerned about getting COVID. And the more concerned that someone is, the more likely they are to say that they're voting for Joe Biden. So that's that personal connection we see in relation to the policy. And it's part of what's reshaping the Sun Belt and putting some of these states in play, maybe reshaping the overall electoral map, Margaret. But what we've been hearing is that people are viewing this as sort of a vote against Trump rather than enthusiasm for Joe Biden. Is it enough for Biden to be this opposition candidate? I think that's a central question to watch going forward. When you look at people who say that they are for Donald Trump, they are voting for him because they like him. But a comparatively larger percentage of Joe Biden's voters say that they're voting for Joe Biden to oppose Donald Trump, to vote against Donald Trump. So that's a dynamic, sort of a classic case in any election. Is it enough? We'll have to look and see. It also might translate into enthusiasm. The president has very enthusiastic supporters. And I would add this, too, as we start to look at the economy. Well, that's a place that the president still does at least relatively better on the economy than he does on handling COVID, Margaret. Well, that's interesting because, of course, COVID and the economy are intertwined because the, the economic crisis has been triggered by that. You have this skyrocketing jobless rate. Joe Biden this week came out and made a big economic speech saying Hello, he can be the guy to best rebuild the economy. Can President Trump make the argument that is more convincing to voters that he can do what he did before and do it again, as he keeps saying on the campaign trail? Well, so far in these states, slightly more feel that the president's policies would help the economy recover more so than hurt it or hinder it. So that's one thing again, relative to his handling of COVID that is in his favor. And the other part of this is that, by and large, voters across the political spectrum say that the economy is still a top issue. Yes, COVID is very important for Democrats and their vote, for Republicans less so, but all partisans agree that the economy is important. So that as well could be central going forward, Margaret. You're a data guy. There's not a lot of data about what it looks like to try to go out and vote in the middle of a pandemic. Um, the president says he's against mail-in ballots. Do we know what this election is going to look like in terms of turnout? Well, the indications we get from having watched these later primaries, where we saw people by the tens of thousands requesting mail ballots, turning in mail ballots, and then as polling places were forced to close because they couldn't find enough poll workers, well, that led to longer lines, people standing in line for hours in order to cast votes. If that happens again in November, and every indication is that it will, then the old line that it all comes down to turnout goes double or triple in these cases. I think it shifts the entire dynamic of this campaign and what happens if voters can't easily get access, can't easily get a mail ballot, can't easily get to a polling place. And I think as we watch the polls going forward, this is an election about intensity and access. We'll be right back.
man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. That's it for us today. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were U.S. Surgeon General Jerome Adams, Phoenix Mayor Kate Gallego, Advent Health CEO Terry Shaw, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, and Kinder Care CEO Tom Wyatt. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Plus.